Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 21, and reading up through and including Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. And his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the, end of the, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, 
such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your, in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our Jewish friends have recently finished observing Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is a celebration of something that happened in the second century before Christ. And that's the time period in which this section of Daniel is focusing on, the second century before Christ. And Hanukkah celebrates the rededication of the temple. Now, why rededicate the temple? Well, the temple had been profaned. It had been desecrated by somebody, an enemy of God's people. And then the Jews rose up in arms against that person, and they were able to reestablish some control over their own land, and they were able to cleanse the temple and rededicate the temple. And it, they had an eight-day celebration, and so to this day, Jews celebrate for eight days, uh, lighting one light each day. It's the Festival of Lights, the Festival of Rededication. But we should ask, who was it that made this necessary in the first place? Who was it that desecrated the temple? Who was it that, that made it, that it needed to be cleansed and rededicated? And the answer is a man named Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. And almost every interpreter, every interpreter that I have found, interprets this section of Daniel to be referring to Antiochus IV. He also had a nickname that he quite enjoyed, which was Epiphanes, Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means the manifestation. And on the coins of the day, he had, he had inscribed, God manifest, Epiphanes. And so he, uh, he, he thought a quite deal of himself, and he was the one who desecrated the temple. Now, let me try to catch you up. I know I did this last week, but for those who haven't been here for this series, let me try to catch you up where we are in Daniel because we've heard a great deal about various kingdoms. And what we're doing is we're looking at a, a macro perspective, a big perspective in the early chapters about coming kingdoms that aren't mentioned, that aren't named, but we have some general ideas about them. And then we get more and more and more and more and more specific, narrowing down to a couple of kingdoms, and then one of those kingdoms, and then out of one of those kingdoms, some sub-kingdoms, and then various kings, and then one king in particular, the one we're looking at today, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. So this is how it goes. So try to follow this. And I know I did this last week, but it's, it's hard for all of us to keep these things in our heads. In chapter 2, we have a vision of four coming kingdoms, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and feet of iron and clay. And we identified those kingdoms the best we could as Babylon, and then Medo, the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And then a fifth kingdom that was going to come in and smash all of them. A kingdom not made by humans, but a kingdom established by God 
during that fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, it was going to come in and smash all those other kingdoms and set up an eternal kingdom. That's the macro perspective. That's the big perspective. And then, once again in chapter 7, Daniel saw a vision, once again, of four beasts. And these four beasts uh, were successive beasts, successive kingdoms. They're not identified, all of them. But uh, after those, another kingdom, a fifth kingdom, is going to come in. So we have a repetition. The fifth kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and it's going to be delivered to one like a son of man. He's going to be the one who controls that, that eternal kingdom. And then we move to chapter 8. Now we're, now we're moving in the focus, and now we're focusing on the two middle kingdoms. And in the two middle kingdoms, we find that these are the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom. The Greek kingdom was established by Alexander the Great, and then he fell, and then it talks about that that great Greek kingdom was divided into four smaller kingdoms. So we have the four big kingdoms, then we focus in on two kingdoms, then we focus on one of those kingdoms, the Greek kingdom, and that kingdom was divided into four smaller kingdoms. Okay, are you with me still? Okay, now we're into the four Greek kingdoms. Okay, then we focus in on two of those Greek kingdoms. The king of the north, these were the Seleucids. The king of the south, these were the Ptolemies the Syrian kingdom, and the Egyptian kingdom. And so now, from these four sub-kingdoms, we're focusing on these two, the king of the north, the king of the south. That's where we, where we were last week, okay? Now, we're focusing in on one of those two sub-kingdoms. We're focusing on the Seleucids, the kingdom of the north, and we're honing in on one of the kings of the north, and that was Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. You with me still? Okay, good. Now, why Antiochus Epiphanes? Why does he get this, this press here in this book? Why focus in on this one king? And um, the reason was, is because he was the one who did the most harm to the Jewish people. And that's why it's in the, in the Bible. That's why it's in the Old Testament. Now, you, you recall from last week that who was right in between Syria and Egypt, Israel was. And so every time these kings would pass through and attack each other, they went through. And for the most part, they didn't do too much damage to the Jewish people. But Antiochus was an exception. He was the one who did the most damage. And by the way, he had a nickname that works well in Greek. Uh, his, his title that he liked was Antiochus Epiphanes, the manifest, God manifest. But behind his back, they would call him Antiochus Epimanes, which means the madman. And so uh, this was his nickname. And he was the worst of them all, especially if you were Jewish. And that's why this is important here. Now, we have many details about Antiochus in this section. We're not going to comb through all of those, just like we didn't comb through all of the details about all of those battles between the king of the north and the king of the south. But we have details here that, that are very much in accord with what we know from world history about Antiochus. For example, he calls him here in verse 21 a contemptible person. Contemptible person. And that's, that's, the, that's how he came down in history. And it says that to whom royal majesty has not been given, he came in without warning and obtained the kingdom by flatteries. And that's, that's what we know from history as well. He wasn't in the line to receive the kingdom, but he manipulated things, and through, through murder as well, he was able to establish himself as the king of 
the north. He was also more violent, more violent than his predecessors, particularly, particularly uh, uh, towards the Jewish people. And that's indicated here. He did things that not his fathers nor his father's fathers ever did, as the text tells us. And he uh, continued to make war against the kingdom of the south. We have that recorded here, that he's always trying to conquer the kingdom of the south, but he was not able to do it. And these kings would just go back and forth, the king of the north, the king of the south. They just kept trying to conquer each other, and they did a lot of damage along the way. They plundered each other. They killed a lot of people, but neither of them ultimately was able to carry the day and win the battle. And we have that described in verses 25 to 28. Now, when we get to 29, we have something of a change. This is kind of the same thing we've seen, we saw last week. Then in verse 29, it says, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. So here he's going from the north to the south to attack again. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. Now, Kittim was an old name for Cyprus. And so this would be to the west uh, in, the, in the Mediterranean Sea, but it became used for the western countries, west of, of the Middle East. So the western countries, and we know from history that Rome was, in, was flexing its muscles, and it was beginning to move into these different territories, and the last time that we know of Antiochus invading Egypt, Rome was there, and they gave him an ultimatum. And they, they were the ones who were now the power brokers, and they told him that he needed to make a decision, and this is written in, in history, that he needed to decide what to do, and he said, well, uh, let me go consult with my generals. And so what the, the Roman representative did is he drew a, a circle in the sand around Antiochus, and he says, don't step out of that circle till you have given us your decision. And he saw, as it were, the handwriting on the wall. He said, excuse me, I'm leaving, and he left. But it says here that on his way out, he was very angry, and he was angry with the people of God. And he began to devastate the people of the Holy Covenant. And what he did is it describes it here, and this, this lines up with what we know from history. Uh, it says, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant, so the unfaithful Jews were his partners, and the faithful Jews were his enemies. And it says, forces from him, we're in verse 31, shall appear and profane the temple. Here we have it. Profane the temple and the fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but those, the people who know their God, shall stand firm and take action. So this is why it's so important to the Jewish people. Because here we have the history of the desecration of the temple. He set up a, an image of Zeus in the temple. He offered swine flesh on the altar of the temple, so he completely desecrated the temple. Now, um, notice something here. This is the second time we've seen this. The abomination that makes desolate. And we saw it in another place in Daniel. And we saw that Jesus also used this expression in Matthew chapter 24. But we saw that Jesus used this expression to refer to another desecration of the temple that would happen in 70 AD when the Romans would knock the whole thing down. So this is fascinating. The same expression 
It's used to describe what Antiochus did in 167 BC, and that same expression Jesus picked up, and in his sermon in, in Matthew 24 and elsewhere, Mark 13, and also in Luke, uh, he, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation that Daniel mentioned, and then there's kind of this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand, then he says, get out of here. Get out of Jerusalem, because the whole thing's coming down. And so you need to get out when you see this beginning to happen. And so this is important for interpretation. This is important for interpretation, because we have this, this prediction about the abomination of desolation. When did that happen? Well, as far as we can tell, it happened in 167 B.C. And it happened in 70 A.D. So which is it? Which is the, the fulfillment of this abomination of desolation? And yes, exactly, that's the answer. It looks like both are fulfillments of the abomination of desolation. What happened in 167 and what happened in 70. And so, that's, that's a lesson for us in interpreting these sort of uh, prophecies. That they may have more than one manifestation. They may have more than one fulfillment. Now, they're not completely flexible. It, 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 it's not that this happens all the time or every time, but, but it did happen a couple of times, and there may be some future manifestation of this as well. Now, notice what happened here. Notice what happened, that this, these terrible times for the Jews, what did they do? They showed who were really believers and who weren't. You see, he was able to win over many of them, it says, verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. These were Jews, but they were violating their own covenant. And then they're contrasted with other Jews. These are all Jews in name. And they're contrasted with other Jews who are described as the people who know their God. And that's what, that's what troubled times do. They, they, they sift out the wheat from the chaff. They divide out true believers from, from believers in name only. And this is how it works all through the history of the world. All of them would say, well, we're all Jews. We're all Jews. And yet, some of them were willing to violate the covenant in order to be in league with Antiochus. And there were others who stood firm because they knew their God and they took action. What action? It doesn't say, but we know from history that some of them took up arms against, uh, against the Greek Invaders, And so some took action because they knew their God, and some capitulated to those who were trying to seduce them. And that's always how it will be. That's how it will be for believers today as well. That's what happens during persecution. That's what happens during, during pandemics as well. It's, it's a pruning. It's a sifting out. It's a dividing those who are, are Christians in name only from those who truly know their God and take the appropriate action. Now, um, when we move on from this description of Antiochus, Epiphanes, we get to chapter 36, and, I'm sorry, verse 36, and here, all interpreters have something of a challenge. Because when you line up world history with all these verses up to verse 35, it fits really well. And then in verse 36, it starts not fitting so well as the previous verses. And so 
there, there are many that, that struggle with this. All interpreters struggle with this. Let's, let's take a look at this just for example. Verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. That fits Antiochus Epiphanes very well. But then it says, He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. It still fits. Verse 37, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women, that was, that was some god or goddess. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. That doesn't fit quite as well. He did magnify himself above all, but he at least made a show of honoring the ancestral gods. And so interpreters start scratching their heads and saying, is this Antiochus or is this some other? And then it says, verse 38, He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. And so, on the one hand, he's not honoring any gods, but then he's invoking foreign gods. This doesn't exactly fit Antiochus, but I'm thinking it might after all. This may be really giving us an idea of what was in his heart, and that is, he made a show. He made a show. He was all about show religion, right? He was happy to take advantage of the show religion of the Jews who were willing to violate the covenant. He may have had his own show religion. He honored the gods publicly, but what was his real god? It says here, the god of fortresses. War was his real god. That was really what he worshipped. He worshipped warfare. And that fits with Antiochus. So maybe, maybe, maybe these verses still are talking about Antiochus. But then we get to verse 40, and it gets more difficult. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, etc., etc. And it talks about more conflicts between the king of the north and the king of the south. And it is, up to this point, impossible to line up these verses with what we know about Antiochus and his later career. And so some who are skeptical about Scripture just say, well, Daniel got it wrong. It's just wrong here, that he didn't know what he's talking about here. Others say, is there something, something different going on here? Uh, because it does say, all of a sudden, at the time of the end, is it, is it, is it amplifying the perspective here? And I want you to notice something that throughout this chapter, it keeps referring to the king of the north, the king of the south. It doesn't identify any of those. They're all called the king of the north and the king of the south, where in fact it's a succession of kings of the north and a succession of kings of the south. And so it would be very much in keeping with this chapter that he's moved on from Antiochus to talk about somebody who is like Antiochus. And so many interpreters, and I agree with them, uh, think that this is a coming king in the mold of Antiochus. Anti this is Antiochus 2.0, okay? This is Antiochus relived, okay? This is, this is a, a future one who is like Antiochus. Now, this approach may at first sound like a desperate attempt to make sense of the text. But as I said, the text itself refers to all these kings under one title, the king of the north, the king of the south. So there's nothing, nothing in this text that would say, well, we can't consider that we've moved on from Antiochus. And in addition, here's another important thing about, about Scripture and about prophecy in particular. Prophecy often outgrows its, its original signification. 
its, its original focus, as you keep reading it, you start saying, this is not fitting anymore what I thought it was talking about. Maybe it's talking about something bigger. Maybe it's talking about something later. Maybe it's talking about something that is in the same train, but it's much grander. In this case, it's talking about something that's in the same train, but much worse. It's outgrown Antiochus. And now we're talking about some, some future king who is like Antiochus, but even worse than Antiochus. Let me give you a few, a few examples. Some of them you may be familiar with, three are from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, about how prophecies tend to outgrow their original reference. This is a psalm, Psalm 45, and it's a wedding song for the king. The king is going to get married, and they have a wedding song poem that is written about this king. And they're singing this song, and they're praising the king, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of this song, they refer to your throne, O God. And they refer to the king as God. All of a sudden, this psalm has outgrown its original reference. And then it refers to the, the anointed of God, the Messiah. And so the, the, this psalm has outgrown the original reference to Israel's king. And it's talking about God and God's anointed one, his Messiah. Or a famous example, if you're reading through Isaiah, Chapters 43 to 53, 42 to 53, there are these songs about some servant. And the servant is Israel. And you're reading, and it's Israel, but then it, it starts outgrowing Israel. And it looks like it's an individual. And an individual who would die for the sins of his people and rise again from the dead. And you start saying, whoa, 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 what, what happened to this servant? How did, it, how did it now get to be the redeemer of God's people? It's outgrown its original boundaries. And then, if you're reading in Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel is hard, kind of hard to get through because it is a description of the new temple. The temple's been knocked down, and they're looking forward to a day when the temple will be rebuilt. And they're describing in great detail, detail the architecture of this temple. And then you're starting to read this, and you're saying, I'm not getting how this works. This is no longer architecturally possible. This is no longer physically possible. And then you have these strange characteristics that there's a little rivulet that comes out of the temple. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger without any tributaries uh, filling it up. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And then it turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. And it gets to the ends of the earth. And it's, it's, it's bringing life to all creatures. And like, wait a minute. Aren't we talking about a blueprint for the temple in Jerusalem? But what did it do? It outgrew its original reference. It's something bigger, but in the same train. And then the last reference is... Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is that, that discourse when Jesus talks about what's going to happen in 70 AD. And they say, they say he says, there's going to be a day when the, not one stone is left upon another in this temple. It's all going to be taken down. And they say, when will that happen? And so he begins to tell them when it's going to happen. And he describes the events of 70 AD. And then, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And we realize now he's talking about the heavens falling down and the Son of Man coming and is seen by everybody. And we realize it's not just talking about 70 AD. It's talking about his return in glory. And so it outgrew its original reference. And so what do we have here? We have this prediction outgrew Antiochus to become something more and something terrible that would happen at the time of the end. And then we get to the conclusion in chapter 12. At that time, the time of the end shall arise Michael, we've met Michael before, 
the great prince who has charge of your people. We met Michael last week. He's battling on behalf of the Jewish people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. Jesus used that description to refer to 70 AD. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So what do we have here? It, it, it becomes very clear that now we're not just talking about the end of Antiochus Epiphanes, are we? This is getting pushed way forward. It's talking about a time when, when the dead would rise. It's talking about a time when, when the books would be opened and that people's names would be found written in the book. So what do we have here? We have a time of great suffering. We have a time when those whose names in the book would be delivered. We have a time when those who died would be raised from the dead, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And we have a time when the wise would distinguish themselves and they would shine among the darkness that is around them. And then in that, in that conclusion, then the, the speaker says to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So uh, this is not hide it. This is preserve it. Seal it so it can be available at the time of the end. Now, that's helpful to us because there are many things that we haven't understood about this book. And this, this uh, shutting it up and sealing it for the time of the end indicates that we're not going to understand it until it happens. At the time of the end, it will be there because it's been preserved. It's in our hands and we could say, oh, 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 so that's what that meant. Now I get it. Now I know how to act. Now, this conclusion is remarkable in a number of ways. It, it has the only reference, the only reference in the whole Old Testament to the phrase everlasting life. It's the only place. The concept may exist other places in the Old Testament, but it's the only place that phrase shows up, eternal life or everlasting life. It's also the clearest reference in the Bible, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, to the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous at the end of the days. That all will be raised, some will go to everlasting life, and some will go to everlasting contempt. Now, th these are concepts that if you've read the New Testament, you've heard of them before, because they come into the fore in the New Testament. So here we're getting towards the end of the Old Testament, and now we find these concepts being introduced very, very clearly. And then we have Jesus coming and explaining how this all works. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this, For I have come, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now that's clear, isn't it? You see, we have this, this murkiness all through the Old Testament. What happens after a human dies? Well, he or she goes to Sheol. What's Sheol? It's the pit. It's death. It's the grave. And then what? 
Well, the Old Testament isn't particularly clear. There's some suggestions. Job, there's a suggestion in Job. Suggestions in the Psalms. Here we get to Daniel, and there's this, this, this clear statement that, no, that's not where we remain forever. There will be a resurrection, and at that resurrection, there will be a division of humanity into those who go to everlasting life and those who go to everlasting contempt. And now we have in the, the New Testament, Jesus picks that up. This is, this is his commentary, as it were, on Daniel. And he's saying, this is how it functions, folks. I'm the one who brings these things about. I'm the one who brings about resurrection from the dead. I'm the one who is able to raise the dead and to give life to all who believe in me. And so, all of us are heading that way. Not just the folks in Daniel's day. All of us, sooner or later, are heading to that Sheol, to that grave, to that pit. And then we ask ourselves, then what? Then what happens? Well, the answer is this. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you're connected to him, you're raised from the dead to have eternal life. And how does that work? You see, if, if you want to be raised from the dead, what you need to do is find somebody who was raised from the dead and hang on to his coattails. You see, that's what you need to do. You need to find someone who has, who has broken those bonds of death and, and be related to him in such a way that, that you can be carried up with him. And if you want eternal life, you want to, to find someone who has eternal life and not only has eternal life, but is able to dispense eternal life, to give eternal life to whomever asks it of him. And I think you recognize that there's only one candidate that, that qualifies for that description. There is only one who has himself been raised from the dead and can take all those with him in the resurrection of the dead who believe in him. There's only one who has in himself life and is able to dispense that life to whomever will have it. And so that's the, that's the offer, that's the question, that's, the, that's the, the command today, and that is to believe on Jesus, to connect yourself to him who was raised from the dead, to connect yourself to him through faith, to him who has eternal life, and gives it to all who believe. And then, on that day that Daniel spoke of, and on that day that Jesus spoke of, and on that day that becomes clearer and clearer throughout the Scripture, there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear on the day of our death, nothing to fear on the day of the resurrection, if we are united to Jesus by faith. The resurrection from the dead and eternal life are ours in Him. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you that at the end of this complicated, difficult, mysterious description of ancient goings and comings of kings, of that Antiochus Epiphanes and of one later who would come in his, in his stead, or in his mold, even worse, we thank you that at the end of it, it, it brings us back to life. It, it, it shows us Jesus. It shows us the, the author of life, the giver of eternal life, the, the first to rise from the dead as the first fruits of all who believe in him. And I pray for all of us that we would indeed be connected to Jesus by faith, that the resurrection from the dead would be ours, that eternal life would be ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray, O oh God, for all of us who hear the voice today of the Son of Man, that we would hear his voice and believe, be united to him, so that we might live, even now and forever. We pray in his name. Amen.